And welcome to the Health Hour. It's Adam Hirschman stepping in for Jonathan Witt. My dear friend is away at the moment. So we've got an action-packed show today. Um, anyone who comes into the studio can get a free dose of Ebola. We're handing them out. Um, but if you want to get in touch, you can hook us up. WeChat ID Cliff Central. Call us on 0861 Just after the song, we're going to give Catherine Child a call to chat about the news. Uh, and then we've got a guest um, specialist, Dr. Yossi Unterslack. He's an obstetrician gynecologist. We're going to be speaking all about the vagina coming up soon. Cheers, guys. First things first, I'm the realest. realest. Drop this and let the whole world feel it. Let them feel it. And I'm still in the murder business. I can hold you down like I'm giving lessons in physics. Right, right. right. You should want a bad bitch like this. Huh? Drop it low and pick it up just like this. Yeah. Cup of ace, cup of goose, cup of crisp. High heels, something worth a heavy ticket on my wrist. Back. On my wrist. Taking all the liquor straight, never chase that. Never stop like we bring an 88 back. What? Bring the hood scene where the bass at. Champagne spilling, you should taste that. You wishing you could clutch that. That's just the way you like it, huh? It's so good, he just wishing he could bite it, huh? Never turn down nothing. Slaying these hoes, gold sugar on a gun, like. Central.com. And welcome back. I think we've got Catherine on the line to do a bit of news. Catherine, are you there? Hi. 
Hey. How are you? Good. Living the dream. How are you doing? I'm good. Fantastic. Give us some news. What's going on in the world of medical news? Oh, it's the same old news. Everyone is still talking about Ebola. What do you mean? Like people live, then they die at the end? Yeah, but if we could all just calm down, that's what I'd like to ask. Really, <laughs> we are being a bunch of idiots. Well, personally, I believe Ebola is the start of the zombie apocalypse, but that's just my personal opinion. That being said, um, what's going on? I know that uh, Jack Bloom's been having a bit to say from the DA and uh, our health minister's been going right back at him. Um, oh, it was very funny, yeah. <laughs> where, where are you at on it? What, what, what's going on? It just seems like every day there's a new rumor about Ebola and these journalists have to run around verifying or finding out that they're nonsense. The specialists and professors who are trying to do their jobs and test things and keep us healthy are having to answer their phone every two minutes with another journalist saying, oh, I heard there was a baller here, I heard there was a baller there. I hear you. Last night, there was a rumor that someone had died at, at Charlotte Montenegro Hospital. Yeah. But it wasn't true. Okay. Uh, Jack Bloom had everyone in a panic a week ago because he said they've tested someone from a baller and it's been kept secret from us and he was exposing this, like, wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. So the minister said to him, like, really... Chill out. Chill out, basically. He must sit down. Look, I think uh, I'll give you my take on it. Working in the government sector at the moment and doing calls in a casualty where everyone and anyone comes in with their problems, I think a bit of both is necessary. I certainly think panic helps no one, and there's no place for it in in this kind of environment. But I will say that a nonchalant, don't worry, there's not going to be anything, is also wrong. Like a lot of hospitals in the government uh, sector are not equipped or prepared um, or have the knowledge to actually um, cope with and deal with a potential Ebola exposure. And you need to remember that the thing about South Africa, and you know, patting ourselves on the back, we have a very good reputation for healthcare in on the continent, and we get a lot of visitors um, from all over the the continent for obviously for business reasons, etc. But actually, as patients, um, international SOS, Netcare, ER24, Emerging Med, various people fly. Um, patients in from all over the continent and offer their medical treatment because we have such a good standard of care. And I think that um, a lot of, like the the government hospitals certainly, haven't got kind of exposure kits and they don't necessarily have the things to look for. But everyone needs to chill out because panic helps no one. And that's the truth. And it makes us journalists very busy making phone calls (laughs) about random cases that didn't exist. But you made me a little worried because we do have a lot of people coming across our border and Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean look I mean look, just you know, to lay some people's uh, fears at rest, I think that uh, you know, there are a couple of things to cover. Um firstly obviously Ebola is a virus, it's from the hemorrhagic fever family. Um it is not highly contagious. This is an important uh point to note. It is not an airborne transmission. In other words, if someone sneezes uh, in your vicinity, etc., like the flu virus or something, you're not going to catch Ebola. It is specifically spread by contact with bodily fluids that are infected. So you're talking about um, your vomitus, your fecal stool. Um, I'm not 100% sure about urine, um, certainly blood. Um, and it needs to come into contact with uh, an oral mucosa or an open wound or something in order for you to um receive you know to, to take on the virus etc so it's not a highly contagious you're not going to catch up by sitting next to someone in a taxi or sitting on the same chair as someone obviously if you lick their toilet seat i can't guarantee <laughs> you're not going to get it 
the people just need to stop freaking out. But I do think that an awareness is important, and that's the truth. I hope Jacqueline is listening. <laughs> and, and, and what else? Yeah. What else, Catherine? What, what, what else is rocking our world? Anything huge and epic you want to bring up? There's nothing huge and epic and exciting. One thing I've learned about health journalism and is that everyone likes to fight with each other and go to court. And, like, and everything happens really slowly. So the government wants to make a change to policy to help you out. And it's going to take months, and then it's going to land up in a court case. So I don't have anything majorly sensational, but there's a potential another court case that could happen again. Um, this time it's medical aids fighting with the insurance industry. Okay. But what, what it really, what, how it matters to the consumer or the listener is that people get conned and they think, oh my goodness, I want to go to one of these amazing hospitals that people fly all over from yeah. Africa to, but I can't afford medical aid, so let me get a hospital plan. And there they pay for their 300 rand a month and they think they're going to be fine. Sorry for them. Like you. they didn't read the small print. So there's a lot of problems with these plans that people are being conned into and they land up in hospital and it doesn't cover anything. Look, I'll be honest. I personally hope that uh, the insurance companies and the medical aides go at it and sort something out. I mean, uh, I know Jonathan Witt uh, had Diane Silva in a while ago to discuss medical aids and hospital plans and give the, you know, the listeners a little bit of an idea of the differences between them and what's important to note and all about the small print. Um, but at the end of the day, like we as the public need to understand that um, medical aids, hospital plans exist for one reason, for them to make money. It's not, it's not for us to get, it's, it's not for us to, to get like the benefit really. I do, I do believe everyone should be on a medical aid or hospital plan. I think it's, uh, it's, it's an in, essential element to our lives. But honestly, at the end of the day, it's about cash flow. It's, you know, the actuaries sit down, they work out exactly how much they need to charge in order to make a whole lot of money. And yeah, I'm going to correct you. Yeah? I'm going to interrupt and correct Go you. Go for it. Hospital plans exist to make money. All they want to do is take the 300 rand every month and screw you over when you get sick. But medical aids are designed so that they can't turn your way. Even if you're sick and old and you're going to cost them a fortune and, like, you're the worst patient, you're going to... Uh, I'm going to interrupt you and disagree and say you're absolutely right to some extent, but every medical aid reaches a, a, a place where they don't cover stuff. So there's many cancers, for instance, where there's known therapies that are being used internationally, but uh, it's like 800, you know, 800,000 rand for a treatment regimen and you've already spent your 2 million rand over ICU and chemo and radiation therapy over two years, and they just won't cover it. Like, everything has a threshold. Um, I do think that medical aids offer a whole lot more than hospital plans, but there's no such thing as unlimited funds, Catherine, I promise you, unfortunately. No, no, there isn't, and I'm going to agree with you. Otherwise, this could take a really long time, and you won't get to the rest of the show. But I just want to say Thanks, now, Catherine. <laughs> um, they're going to go to court because medical aids want these insurance plans out of the way, and the insurance plans are like, it's a constitutional right. No, I got people. You. So yeah, that's, that's where we'll end it. <laughs> anyway, listen, thank you so much for bringing up the, those two points. We really appreciate it. And I, and I don't know if they're going to chat to you next week, but certainly the week after when Wit's back in town, he'll be chatting to you. Thanks so much and have a good cool. one. You too. Cool. Ciao. Bye. Bye. All right, guys. Next up, we have got um, Dr. Yossi Unterslack. Um, Dr. Unterslack is a specialist obstetrician gynecologist, and he's taking time out of an exceptionally busy monumentally, epically difficult schedule to join us, and we really appreciate it. Uh, Yossi, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. How's that? Hey, how are you doing? Good, man. Thanks so much for joining us. We're here to talk about the vagina. I know that it's uh, one of your favorite pastimes, as well as uh, something that you 
you're specializing in and uh, we get literally billions of email requests, messages, SMSs, asking all sorts of obstetric and gynecological questions and uh, we appreciate having you with us to maybe try and nail some of them and get some answers out there. So thanks a it's lot. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having Let, me on. And oh, it's a pleasure. Good afternoon. Yeah, good afternoon. Let's chat. Um, for inst- The first question I want to ask you is, what age or at what stage should a woman first visit a gynecologist, would you say? Okay, so the the, the best time to visit a gynecologist is um, when a woman when a woman first has her sexual debut. That would probably be the, the appropriate time to visit. And uh, that gives a gynecologist an opportunity to discuss things like contraception and safe sexual practices and, um, you know, women's health matters with the patient before they, you know, before they've contracted STDs, before they've fallen pregnant. So when a woman has ha- had their sexual debut, whatever age that happens to be, that's when a patient should first visit their gynecologist. Okay, got you. And um, obviously... If there's an issue, if there's something concerning someone, then obviously before. Sure, so if, of course. If of you, course. Um, so I mean, I know like a lot, a lot of the questions about menarc. At what state, at what age is a normal uh, menses supposed to start? So if someone's sitting at 21 and they haven't seen uh, a menses, for instance, I would assume that would be a good idea um, yes, to kind of to kind of visit. Absolutely. So if you've got any any uh, gynecological complaints that come up before a sexual debut, obviously then you know. Um, a person should visit a gynecologist. It's not uncommon for a young child, for example, to have some some vaginal bleeding, um, to have a discharge. You know, young children often, uh, you know, put uh, foreign bodies in their vaginas and things like that. And that that obviously needs to be dealt with by a gynecologist. But if you obviously have a, a, a uneventful, you know, um, medical history, and then um, reach a sexual debut, that would be the time then to visit the gynae. But obviously any any abnormal symptoms that present which are gynecological in nature should be should be taken to a gynecologist whenever they present. I think just on that topic, I mean, I think that you raise something that uh, in this country is very important from a parental point of view, and that is obviously if you see any type of um, vaginal discharge, bleeding, etc., from your child's vagina, before an age where you would expect puberty or menarche to take place, it's essential to take that to a doctor immediately um, and hopefully a specialist gynecologist because unfortunately there, there is the element obviously of abuse and sometimes people will jump to conclusions before having a very normal physiological response to why it could have uh, basically occurred. Isn't that absolutely, right? absolutely. No, it has to certainly be taken seriously. But like you say, I mean, uh, we shouldn't jump to any conclusions, not make any accusations. And the child probably shouldn't be confronted about the matter until they've been seen by a gynecologist. And once the the child's been examined, if there is a suspicion of sexual assault, then the child should be consulted about it. But if you, you know, if you bring, bring up the subject with a young child who doesn't have a clue what you're talking about, it could be detrimental to the child. So obviously... If a parent is concerned, you know, you take your child's underwear off and there's blood or yeah. discharge or something like that, then take the child to the gynecologist or even to any, any GP or doctor to start there at least. Let them be examined. And if there's a concern, then certainly the topic needs to be brought up with the child and taken further. Okay, got you. Um, just another one. How many babies can someone have, like, safely? Like, what is, is there, like, a limit? Or can we just kind of, uh, octomom, can we just go, Look, like, ballistic? Well, there's no limit. We say that most, most these decisions are generally made by socioeconomic means. 
So obviously you don't want to have too many kids that you can't support, can't feed, and can't look after. But it's not a decision. Um, I mean, a, a healthy person who's got no medical conditions, hasn't had any cesarean sections, for, for, you know, for example. There's no limit on how many children one can have. But obviously, like I said, this decision has to be a socioeconomic decision. You need to be able to support and look after the child that you are bringing into the world. And um, and uh, that's obviously something to consider. But as far as putting, a, putting a, a limit on how many children one can have, there is no limit. In state health care, when we're talking about patients who've had cesarean sections before, we usually say up to three cesarean sections are relatively safe. More than that, we try and limit, and we often... Um, encourage or suggest to our patients to have um, sterilizations at a third cesarean section. But it's not unheard of, and especially in, the, in countries that are, you know, very religious, um, where, you know, contraception is taboo, yeah. it's not uncommon for people to have up to four or five, six cesarean sections. Sure. But obviously, each, each pregnancy has to be monitored very closely. And, you know, if they reach a point where the doctor says, look, it's now unsafe for you to have any more babies, yeah. then it has to be taken seriously. So other than that, is obviously, you know, it's a decision that has to be made by the uh, the, the woman, you know, or the couple in, uh, concerned, and that's the decision that they need to make. Okay, makes sense. On the note of, on, like, discussing Caesars, why are Caesars so common in South Africa? Like, both, I mean, well, let's talk private and public. I mean, is there, are we normal compared to other countries, first world countries, third world countries, or are we particularly aggressive with our op? opting for cesarean sections? Look, you obviously have to separate the states and the private health care when you discuss something like cesarean sections. You know, a patient uh, can't come to Barra and say, I'd like to have an elective Caesar, and they'll get that Caesar, you know. Yeah. In, 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 in state health care, we, we do cesarean sections only for obstetric indications, whether they be maternal or, um, you know, or fetal indications. That's, you know, that's where, when a Caesar will be done in state health care. But uh, in private, you know, it, it's, it's a difficult thing to say why, why are we doing a lot of seizures. But, you know, in my opinion, a lot of, a lot of colleagues are afraid of litigation. You know, people like to say uh, a gynae likes to run their practice from 8 till 5 and then go home and not have to worry about coming in and doing deliveries. But, you know, the, the, the bottom line is, is this new massive space of litigation and, and people are afraid of things going wrong in a, what's, what's very much a natural process and then land up getting sued. And it's a funny thing, but you don't see a gynae getting sued for doing an unnecessary cesarean section, yeah. but you get a lot of gynees being sued for, for what is a natural process going wrong. And um, and that's probably why, you know, we, we're seeing a lot more seizures today than we were than we were many years ago. It's sort of a controlled environment where, you know, less things can go wrong. And that's that's why most gynees are electing to, to to do to do their deliveries by cesarean section. Look, the the the, the big the big talk at the moment in Obzangani internationally really is limiting that first cesarean section. You know, that first cesarean section that gets done, um, sort of, sort of, um, um, you know, getting that patient locked into having further cesarean sections. You know, second, third, fourth cesarean section. And what we what we always speak about in state healthcare is trying to eliminate that first cesarean section. You know, yeah. doing it only for you know for strict obstetric or you know indications, so that you know we can try and bring down the cesarean section rate. On, on we've actually just got a um, one of the listeners has actually sent us a message. Uh, Melissa Kutzer has asked, "Can you have a normal birth after cesarean section?" Obviously, VBAC. 
Can you tell sure. us a little bit about VBAC? You know, when is it safe? At what stage, etc. Absolutely. So, 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 uh, a normal, uh, we call it a VBAC, vaginal birth after cesarean section, and we uh, the South African guidelines, the guidelines we follow, does allow a vaginal birth after one cesarean section. Once someone's had more than one cesarean section, then we don't like them to have a normal delivery after that. There are strict criteria that have to be fulfilled to be able to have a vaginal birth after a caesar. Things, for example, like the baby must not be breached, must not have multiple pregnancies, there mustn't be something like fetal distress or something yeah. like that in the pregnancy, I mean in the labor. But um, if, you know, if, if, if the pregnancy is uneventful, the baby's not of, a, of an excessively large size, then we do allow vaginal births after cesarean section. These patients need to be strictly monitored in preferably a high care area. Um, they need to have a drip up so that if we need to give them blood, et cetera, the, the, the drip is up and ready. They need to have a catheter so that we can see early warning signs of a potential rupture of the uterus. And we need to have a cesarean section theater available within half an hour. So if you think about it, probably the best place to have a vaginal birth after cesarean section is, uh, you know, a government hospital where, you know, where there's, where there's an anesthetist, a blood bank, yeah. a surgeon available at, at all times. The problem with obviously a government hospital is that we've got a lot of seizures often waiting to be done. But at a hospital where you don't have an anesthetist immediately available, a surgeon immediately available, blood on standby, it's, it's you know, it's, it's something that you really need to consider before going ahead and doing a vaginal birth after cesarean section. Like I said, at any sign of, a, of an imminent rupture of a uterus, you've got about a half an hour maximum to get that baby out alive. You know, otherwise you're looking at potentially fatal outcomes. And for I, th- the baby. I think people need to understand that once you've had a, a, a cesarean. Um, you know, yes, you've, you've kind of protected yourself from any complications regarding a normal vaginal delivery, um, tearing, etc. However, once you've made an incision into the uterus, that is a weakness. And I think people need to understand that any scar tissue is weaker than the tissue was before that. And Absolutely. when a woman is uh, in labor and the uterus is contracting, you're putting a lot of pressure on a site that may be weaker than it should be. And that's where you're coming up, and that's where you're discussing the rupture element. It's not a, yes, not a standard thing. And then yeah, on, no, so what, what I was going to say is, um, you know, you're looking at a, a very small risk. After one cesarean section, your risk is well less than 1% of a, of a rupture in the subsequent labor or pregnancy. Um, you know, there are certain um, higher risk incisions. If someone's had, a, had an incision done on the uterus in the midline up and down, it's a slightly higher risk of rupturing. So we wouldn't allow those patients to have a normal birth after a Caesar, and that would be pre- usually the person who had a very preterm delivery or a Caesar for a placenta preview or something like that. But if it's been a normal cesarean section for something like obstructed labor or fetal distress, then it's 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 a it's a safe it is a safe option to have yeah. a VBAC so long as you've been properly assessed um, by a gynecologist who feels that you know your risk is uh, an acceptable risk. And then. I know that most of the men who are listening right now are all pro Caesar because they want to protect the vagina. Um, but let me ask you honestly, like, what who, what is safer? Is a cesarean or a normal vaginal normal vaginal delivery safer for the mom and for the child? So from both perspectives, you know, if you were opting, it's a it's it's completely a choice situation, not a not an emergency. What is actually safer? Look, when you have an elective cesarean section, what you're doing, you're exposing the mother to an anesthetic. So we, we, we've, we've progressed a long way from when we used to do general anesthesia for seizures. We now have spinal anesthetics, epidurals, which are a lot safer, but they still have their risks. And this is a risk you're exposing the mother to. 
you know, for, 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 for no obvious reason. So the first thing you need to consider is the anesthetic risk associated with the cesarean section. The other thing you've got to consider is whenever you cut open the abdomen, there's bowel, there's bladder, there's blood vessels, and those kind of things can be damaged when you do a cesarean section. Also, once again, the, the risk is very low, but there is a potential risk to damage bowel, to damage bladder, to damage blood vessels, um, to damage the ureters, which are the pipes that run from the kidneys to the bladder. And you're exposing a patient to these risks. And uh, if you're doing a purely elective cesarean section, then these risks, you know, this exposure is, you know, unnecessary. So you need to consider those things when you do an elective cesarean section. On the other hand, as I said before, if you do an elective caesar, it's a controlled environment. The, the mom hasn't gone into labor yet. You know, there's no risk of um, of birth asphyxia or, or um, you know, damage to the baby's brain during the labour, and that's usually why people elect for uh, for uh, you know opt for elective cesarean sections because it's a safer alternative for the baby in a way. However, that being said, there is there are studies which show that babies born at, by elective cesarean section have a higher risk of admission to ICU. You know, the natural process of the of of, of the baby travelling down the birth canal, as it would. Uh, you know, and and, and like and, pushing and amniotic sort of fluid out of the lungs, exactly. actually so exposing expels, the child to stress. Yeah, exactly. It expels the, the fluid from the lungs, and these babies breathe better after birth. And there's an increased risk of the of babies being admitted to neonatal ICU if they're born by elective cesarean section. So, I mean, I know your question was which is safer. It's a difficult question to answer. Yeah. You need to weigh up the risks associated with both. Um, but obviously, I mean. In, in, in my opinion, labor is a natural process, and as long as you're in decent, safe hands, your labor is being monitored, and you can pick up an emergency and react to that emergency timelessly, then, you know, every person should have at least a trial of labor, and this, a cesarean section should only be done for obstetric indications. Okay. I mean, and, and just, I know I was joking before when I said the men out there are, are praying that you say Caesar, but sure. um, a lot of women, I think, especially in, in, in the private sector, um, also are concerned about there being um, kind of post-normal vaginal delivery complications. Um, sure. And I think uh, there's there's been an increasing market for vaginoplasties, for actual um, surgery by plastics, etc., um, to actually correct. And there is that potential. So it's not a reason to um, completely avoid a normal vaginal, normal vaginal delivery, as you said. Absolutely. Look, uh, there, there, there's certainly stresses and strains on a vagina in a normal birth. You know, one can have a tear, one can need an episiotomy, which is which is a small cut to increase the you know the, the caliber of the vagina if the baby is slightly obstructed. So there is obviously stresses and strains and trauma on the vagina in a natural birth, which we don't have at cesarean section. Um, but generally, you know, and in good hands, once again, these tears and these cuts that are repaired, uh, uh, you know, a patient shouldn't have any lasting um, complications from a tear. Or, or an episiotomy. That being said, there is an association with normal vaginal deliveries and an element of urinary incontinence or leaking of urine invol- involuntarily later on in life, but there is also an association with just being pregnant and having, uh, you know, urological complications and some incontinence. Okay. So it's not, it's not necessarily that um, a seizure will avoid, you know, incontinence later on in life. The pregnancy itself can predispose a patient to Incontinence. Okay, let's 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 change topics a little bit. I wanted to ask you because uh, we've also had a couple of comments uh, about this. Is infertility a significant problem in South Africa? Absolutely. 
Uh, it's, it's definitely a big problem. It's a pro- problem internationally, really, and it's a problem that we, we you know, we see caught sort of, sort of a rising trend, and uh, and it's a big problem locally that we we don't really have state facilities. Certainly in Gauteng, Cape Town does have options available, Cape Town, Stellenbosch, but we don't really have, um, you know, options, facilities available for state patients to get the kind of care that they need when they battle with infertility. What, what, so it's certainly, sorry, I just want to ask, like, what, are the, what types of infertility are there? I mean, I think that's okay, so, an important aspect. All right, so, so every infertile couple has to be assessed as a, as a unit. And we've got male, you get things like male infertility and female infertility. Male infertility can be divided up to uh, divided into, for example, sexual dysfunction, where a pa- patient has an erectile dysfunction and isn't able to perform penetrative sex, which would, uh, you know, which would mean that uh, that couple wouldn't be able to conceive. And then you have problems which, you know, re- are related to the sperm that the patient that, that the male the male may have um, sperm in low numbers or may have lunatic no fringe sperm. sperm. That's a real thing. People need to know about the lunatic fringe sperm. <laughs> Tell us about it, Ed. <laughs> it's just it's basically lunatic lunatic fringe sperm. Sorry, I just had to throw that in. I love that term. Go for okay. it. Sorry. Good. Um. So so yeah. So so you got uh you know you got male factor, and I've discussed you know either abnormal sperm or too little sperm or no sperm at all, and then you've got also your sexual dysfunction where male maybe either can't obtain a, can't can't achieve an erection or maintain an erection and therefore isn't able to penetrate sex. So there's that, that would be your male factors, and then in your female factors there's you know, there's 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 different uh, um, factors involved. For example, there's a tubal factor. So if a patient's got um, blocked tubes or abnormal tubes, you know, a, a, a pregnancy is uh, achieved when a female the female ovulates, the the a little egg is released from the ovary. That egg is caught by the tube. The tube the egg then travels down the tube and meets the sperm, which has traveled up through the cervix and through the uterus into the tube. And that's usually where the fertilization takes place. And then um, it continues to, to to come down and settle inside the, the uterus. So if a patient's got blocked tubes where the egg can't travel down or the sperm can't meet the egg, this would this would render a, a, pers- a person infertile. That would be a tubal factor. You've then got things like ovarian factors. So either the patient's got, you know, um, poor quality eggs or the patient's got not enough eggs, isn't ovulating every month, that would be another factor involved. And then there's also um, um, factors, you know, congenital factors. So a person may be born with an abnormally shaped uterus or may be born with, with, um, you know, an obstruction between the vagina, cervix, uterus or tubes. And those kind of things would obviously need to be investigated for. So when you talk about infertility, it's a massive subject, yeah. and we generally divide into male and female factors. But then in each in each of the male and the female factors, there's lots of different contributing factors which we could could render a couple infertile. And um, it, it, locally, what we see a major problem that we have is obviously tubal factor, and that's um, you know that's usually. Um, recur, uh, occurs from recurrent STDs, yeah. and um, what these do, what these recurrent STDs do, they they, call, they make the tubes very inflamed, and the tubes get blocked, and then we can't get the 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 the, 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 the patient, the female may be ovulating, but there's no communication between the sperm and the egg, and therefore no fertilization takes place. And then, I mean, am I correct in saying there's a, a kind of a an assessment as far as how often a couple is having intercourse and over how long before infertility is even investigated? Because I know some people may say, well, I've been trying for two months and nothing happened. So I'm infertile and I'm going to see someone. Absolutely. So we need to be having intercourse at the right time. 
which would be around the time of ovulation. And that's generally about 12 days into the, um, after, the, after the start of a period, 12 to 15 days after the start of a period. And that would be around the time of, of ovulation. And we'll often see couples in, uh, in, in, you know, commonly in state hospitals and they'll complain of infertility, but we'll find that the, the, the husband and wife don't live with each other and they're only seeing each other maybe once or twice a month. And when they're having intercourse, happens to fall out at the wrong time of the month to conceive. Yeah. So there's certainly an element of having intercourse and having intercourse at the right time. And, um, you know, there are certain factors that one can do to track when, when, when one's ovulating. You can buy an ovulation home kit and that could give you an indication of when you're ovulating. And there are some other things that can be shown to a patient to be able to track their ovulation so that they time their intercourse correctly. And then we generally stay after between six, six months to a year of, of regular intercourse at the correct time and the couple doesn't conceive, then they need further investigation for infertility. Okay, and then obviously, I mean, we said that in public there's, you know, not much available, unfortunately, in Gauteng, but there, there may be some in the Western Cape. But in private, I mean, there's, there's quite a... It's a hugely developing field. I mean, fertility is a massive field, and uh, there is hope. I mean, you know, yes. can you maybe give us a couple of options that are so, currently available? Obviously. So, so like I, I mean, I mentioned before the tubal factor, and when you, you know, if you've got a problem where, you know, if the female is ovulating, the male has adequate sperm, but they're just not meeting. There is an option which is called IVF which is um, what you do is you stimulate the ovaries to produce quite a few eggs, not the typical one per month. I'm giving you a very simple simple terms here. Sure. But, um, so what you'll do is you'll stimulate the ovaries that the, the female will have more than, more than one egg, a few eggs. Then what you'll do is you'll, through a small uh, day procedure, put a needle into the ovary transvaginally, collect those eggs. Then you take the male sperm and you fertilize the eggs with the sperm outside of the body and that's what's called in vitro so we you basically will will the, 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 you'll take the sperm fertilize the eggs grow those embryos to either day three or day five see that these are good quality embryos and obviously this entails a laboratory with uh, you know very expert care and then once you've seen that the embryos are of good quality at day three or day five depending on you know what the pathology is then those embryos could then be transferred back into the uterus either one or two generally we stop at about two back into the uterus and then what you've done there is you've avoided the tubes so you've eliminated the tubal factor and managed to get the, get the egg and the sperm to meet outside of the body and introduce a fertilized an embryo into the uterus at a later stage so that would be the one option obviously for a couple that has uh, for a, you know an abnormal sperm where the sperm is just not able to penetrate the egg and we're not able to fertilize the egg there's something called ICSI, which is called intracytoplasmic sperm injection, where you can take one good I love that sperm, sperm injection. <laughs> <laughs> so you take one good healthy sperm injected into the egg, and uh, and also then um, um, uh, in outside of the body grow it to day three, day five, see that it's a good quality embryo, and then and then um, you know re-implant it into the into the uterus. So there are plenty of options available. Um, you know, there's a lot. There's a there's a big field now in sperm donation and egg donation. So if uh, if the if the, if, the, if it's a female factor and the problem is with quality eggs or a patient's not ovulating at all, you know, there, is, there is an option to have yeah. um, egg donation where the child will still be uh, genetically, you know, um, matching to the to the to the male partner, or if sperm donation is used to the female egg, but. You know, it still it gives the couple an opportunity to have, have a child. their yeah. own child, absolutely. And then uh, this is, I mean, I only ask this question because 
when I asked my dad growing up, you know, how did you make a girl? How did you make it? He said he aimed left for one and right for the other. <laughs> so, I mean, we actually, all jokes aside, as doctors often get asked, at least I remember when I was in Guinea at Barra, being asked quite often, you know, how do I make a boy? Especially like with cultural elements or someone who's had only boys, they want a girl. And they often ask, is there any scientific kind of relevance to when, how, why to change? I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what a real expert once told me, Ed. He said to me, what you need to do if you want a girl is leave the socks on and stir anti-clockwise. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's what I was fantastic. told by a real expert. But other than that... You heard it first here on cliffcentral.com, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Suddenly there's going to be a massive buyout on socks tomorrow. You won't be able to find socks anywhere. <laughs> but is there... I mean, I, I've, I've heard there have been various there, things about... There are, there are techniques like that are P, available. Like pH in the vagina, temperature, the, a time of ovulation. Is, is any of that... Uh, not really. No. Not really. None of that stuff really works. But there is... You know, there is... There is you know, there are options where sperm selection... And there are things that are available, but it's not available to... You know, we, it's not it's not being done to select, uh, you know, a certain sex. You know, there's something called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, which is used to eliminate rare genetic diseases in couples that can't have a normal child. And that way also the sex of the child can be determined. But it's not being used to say, you know, I've got three boys and I want a girl, so now we're going to, you know, eliminate all the embryos that are male and just keep the females. That's not what it's being used for. But there are, there are, there are, there are techniques available. But it's not, you know, it's not, it's not commonly done that a couple can say, you know, I want a girl now, and go to the clinic and say, make us a girl. That's, that's not how, yeah, it's you. not how it's done. You know, we, we're looking at helping uh, infertile couples, you know, achieve the dream of having a child. Exactly. And if the couple carries a rare genetic disease, you know, something like cystic fibrosis or uh, Tay-Sachs disease, where you can, you know, uh, fertilize a few embryos, select out the healthy embryos, and eliminate those that carry the disease, and you know, that's obviously giving couples today the chance to have children whereby many years ago they would, we couldn't. you know, yeah. And you've just touched on it. I mean, how, how important is genetic testing in South Africa? I mean, given what you've just mentioned. Look, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a common problem, you know, in certain groups, groups like the Ashkenazi Jews, you know, where, where there are diseases like Tay-Sachs, uh, cystic fibrosis, canavan, things like that. And, you know, there are, there, yeah, exactly. And there are, there are, there are certain, you know, banks available where, you know, you can do, uh, specific genetic testing to see that a couple are genetically compatible, if you like. Um, uh, but, but outside of those high risk groups, it's not really something that needs to be considered. Okay. Um, we got a question from one of our listeners, Nicole, asking, uh, and I was going to touch on it a bit later with you, but what is the impact of birth control? Um, when it comes to women with a bad history of depression, so is there an element um, that of, of birth control that's going to negatively affect people who suffer from depression? Look, there, there, there are some some uh, depressive uh, uh, what you call it um, diseases that are related to hormones, hormones and that are related to you know uh, menstrual cycles, and generally depression is improved in these patients when you take away ovulation and you take away their flux of hormones and put them on an oral contraceptive pill, which keeps the hormones at a very steady level. And, you know, in those patients that suffer from a hormonal type of depression, they improve, they improve on, um, on, on hormone, on hormone contraception, on hormonal contraception. But, um, you know, that being said, uh, 
as far as it, it, the the contraceptive pill making depression worse, it's not it's not a a, a common you know side effect, yeah. and it's not something that it's not a reason that one should stay away from contraception. The other option, the other thing is that there's so many options available today uh, as far as contraception is concerned, and if one one method of contraception, one type of pill, one type of hormone, you know, is making a patient either depressed or giving them other symptoms. There's so many other options available. And, you know, there's very rarely a reason today why someone should not be on contraception. On that note, I mean, let's let's take abstinence uh, out of the equation and uh, barrier devices like uh, male and female condoms. Absolutely. What, what we, other we pharmacy- say that ba- yeah. We say that barrier, barrier methods, male and female condoms, I don't like to consider them as contraception. I consider them as disease prevention. Yeah. One should still be on contraception, even if you're using a male or a female. So you're basically saying that babies are a disease. No, <laughs> <laughs> so what what other what chemical pharmaceutical kind of options are available okay, so, from a contraceptive so, point of view? So there's a there's 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 there's, oral, there's the old school oral contraceptive pill, which either has um, combined oral contraceptive pill, which has both estrogen and progesterone in, and there's obviously Many, many different types, different doses, different formulations of that. There's also what's called the mini pill, which is a progesterone only pill, which is generally used in, uh, in women that are breastfeeding that have recently had a baby. You know, there's, there's, there's preparations such as injectables, there's preparations such as patches, um, there's, there's newer devices like uh, intrauterine devices, which contain progesterone, or just copper only, which is a non hormonal contraceptive device. There's things like subdermal implants, which uh, you can have a little rod inserted under the skin, which can act as Everyone loves a little rod inserted. <laughs> <laughs> gotta, and then gotta stay on it. Come on, let's go. Let's keep it real. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then obviously there's, yeah. there's things, you know, there's new, newer things like vaginal rings. So there's so many yeah. different options. And that's why I say there's, there's, no, there's no, no No one can ever say... You know, I cannot be on contraception yeah. because this or that doesn't agree with me. There's too many options available, and one just needs to be patient and work with their gynecologist to find the best option available for so, them. So let's say they didn't listen to this show. They didn't use contraception. They've just found out they're pregnant. At what stage should people either in you know government book for antenatal clinic or in private go and see an obstetrician gynecologist? At what stage after finding out you're pregnant um, should you present? Every, place, every person needs to be seen by their gynecologist by at least 10 weeks of the pregnancy. So, I, you know, I tell my patients that at first missed period, they should do a pregnancy test, confirm that they're pregnant, and then book an appointment with their gynecologist at around 10 to 12 weeks. There's a lot of important screening tests that are done at that, which we call the first trimester screen, which need to be done, which, you know, eliminates a lot of, uh, um, you know, you can, you can make sure that's a healthy pregnancy, predict things like preeclampsia, um, you know, which is hypertension in pregnancy and those patients who we can predict it in, we can give them some, some, there are some methods available to prevent them, you know, complicating later on in pregnancy. So everyone should be seen by their gynecologist by at least between 10 to 12 weeks. And I always tell my patients in the state, if you book early, you get an incentive that you get to see a really nice scan of your baby at 12 weeks, which is a very important scan, which is called the nuchal translucency test, which is very good at predicting chromosomal abnormalities, things like Down syndrome. Yeah. And especially your older patients, they really need to book early. Have I mean, a not, have, on that yeah. advanced maternal age over 35, is that still uh, what we consider? Yeah, we, 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 we're moving towards 40, okay. actually, in, in South Africa. So we're moving towards 40. A lot, of, a lot of the clinics and a lot of state facilities are still using above 35, but we're saying above 40 is where you really increase your risk. Okay. 
Um, and after the 12-week scan, I mean, what other scans are available? I mean, in private, a lot of people are talking about these 4D scans, but that's more for the benefit thing. of like, yeah, having a photo that's of a your unborn thing. child. It's getting basically. to meet your baby before he's born. That's a nice thing. It's a nice to have. And 4D scan does have a place when you're looking at, uh, you know, uh, you know, a baby with gross congenital abnormalities, things like cleft lips and things like that, where you want to be able to properly analyze that, that abnormality before the baby's born so you can plan for, for, for that post-delivery. But mostly, I mean, it, it, patients go for their 4D scans. So it's, it's a social event. It's a nice thing to do. It's a nice thing to have, but it's not a necessity. But what, 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 what all patients must have is their first trimester scan, 10 to 12 weeks roughly, and then your, your second trimester scan, which is done you know, early in, 20, in the 20s, roughly, okay. you know. And then once once those two scans are done and there's no, you know, we don't pick up any problems. But after that, most of the scans are, are you know, are only needed if if there's if we encounter any problems along the way. And then you also, I mean, like at least in, you know, at least in kind of the state, and, and I said a lot at the hospital I'm currently working at in casualty, we have a lot of women present to us, um, you know, they're pregnant and they present with heavy bleeding and it's often a miscarriage. How common are miscarriages and is there anything specific that can be prevented? The reason I'm asking is because I, I may be wrong, but I remember being taught that it's almost 50%. One out of two pregnancies can terminate um, naturally within the first trimester. And I, I like to always tell my patients that because I, I don't want them to walk away feeling like they've done something um, and that it's not going to affect sure. going forward. So well, I'll put it to you like this. What we what 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 we say is, you know, once a if a person's had, or we're talking about first trimester miscarriages here, yeah. but once a person's had two or three consecutive miscarriages, then we start to investigate those patients. But before they've had two or three consecutive miscarriages, you know, that's uh, we we still consider that as not an abnormal process. You know, almost like a, it can happen. There's, so much needs to be correct. It needs to needs to be right for a pregnancy to develop. You know, it has to be 100% chromosomally normal. Implantation has to be normal, and things like that. And with, you know, in the absence of one of those things going, going, you know, going, going right, the pregnancy will result in a in a miscarriage. But once a person's had two consecutive, or in some cases three consecutive miscarriages, then that person needs to be investigated further for other causes of miscarriage. And I, um, I remember actually seeing a study um, when I was at Barrow that that said that someone, I don't remember where it was done, but they basically investigated, um, kind of they looked at the aborted fetuses of natural miscarriages and they found massive um, chromosomal abnormalities absolutely. or massive congenital abnormalities like no heart, no brain, things that the absolutely. body actually realized this is not viable for life and therefore it actually terminates on its absolutely. own. Absolutely. You know, your first trimester miscarriages, that's, you, that's commonly what the cause is. And, you know... It's almost like, you know, that that baby would not have been viable, would not have survived had it grown to term, and therefore, you know, yeah. this, the, the pregnancy terminates early. Let's, and, um, yeah. let's look at the, the, the other side to this, and that is termination of pregnancy. Is, would you say, like in your opinion, is South Africa quite liberal with termination of pregnancy? I think we are, and I think there's, 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 there are a lot of facilities available to, to patients who opt for a termination of pregnancy. And um, you know we 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 are quite liberal, and uh, and I think it's, it certainly has its place in a country like South Africa with you know the socio-economic problems that we have. So, but, but it must it, never it, replace contraception. Absolutely, absolutely. That was I, my next. Yeah, because that's like, and I think that's every available. doctor's opinion. I don't. I think yeah. 
I think we, we've all been exposed to it in states, and I think it's something that, that grates our pips, is people yeah. coming and going, well, I don't want a baby now. Yeah, and it's like, well, what contraception are you more. on? No, I'm not on contraception. Yeah. No, nothing breaks my heart more when I see a patient who's had two, three, four terminations. And, and we do see those patients. Yeah. And, um, you know, t- contraception is freely available to anybody. Anybody can walk into a local clinic and pick up, you know, so many different varieties. Like I said, you know, if you don't want to think about contraception, you can put in a cup of tea, which stays for 10 years. You don't even have to think about it ever again for the, for the next 10 years. There's things like the subdermal implants for three years, five-year um, progesterone-containing devices. And, you know, it really isn't an excuse to have an unwanted pregnancy. We do see the odd occasion where, you know, uh, a couple uh, conceive and then the, the relationship breaks down and then the per- person comes looking for, a, for an abortion. And, we, you know, you obviously get, unfortunately in South Africa, a lot of pregnancies that result in rape. And there's obviously a place for yeah. terminations of pregnancy, but it, it should never, as you say, replace contraception. But and replace safe sex, replace condoms, replace barrier methods yeah. and contraception. And I think uh, people also need to know that, um, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think in the first trimester it's by choice. Anyone can opt for a termination and it can be done at a clinic. In the <laughs> second trimester it needs to be done, I think, at a hospital, if I'm not mistaken. Right. And there needs, and to, needs to, be to be a more legitimate sure. reason. Yeah. And then in the third trimester, um, it, it has to be done with at least one doctor and one midwife or two doctors' decision, as well as a significant major factor that has to motivate why it is done. And at that point, it's actually feticide. I mean, more than it is a termination. Exactly. exactly. Um, got it spot on. Then just, you, could, you could be working in the field. Uh, not for all the money in the world, but I have all the respect in the world for you, you guys. I like to, work with I like me, to eh? keep the vagina more of a pastime, like something to do you know, as often as possible, but not get paid for it. I um, think you had a lot of fun when you worked with me a few years ago. Oh, uh, we did. We certainly did. Um, and even when we were at work. Um, exactly. yours, um, just to, I'm just going to interrupt our discussion for a section. One, uh, for, a se- uh, for a second, I just said for a section. I'm thinking of caesareans. Um, one of our listeners, Melissa, sent an image of um, a child's foot. Um, it looks like a, a neonate, and it looks like toes uh, three and four are conjoined. And she asked if this should be fixed. And I, I obviously, I'll, 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 you know, let you answer. But just from my side, um, once you know you see something that may be a, a congenital abnormality of any kind, it's more important to take that to a pediatrician for an opinion, um, because. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, there, there are many reasons for these things. Sometimes they're absolutely benign and normal. There's nothing to worry about. But uh, a pediatrician would be the, the best equipped person to answer that type of question. Absolutely. I mean, you could you could get a chance abnormality, something like that, which is an isolated thing. But often, you know, there are abnormalities that come in syndromes. And the patient, you know, the child needs to be examined from top to bottom. The heart needs to be listened to, etc., to make sure that it is just an isolated abnormality. And generally, if it is just webbed toes, we've told the child, you know, doesn't need that corrected, but the child should be examined and make sure that that's in, us, in isolation. There's no syndrome related. Let's uh, let's touch something different, which is, uh, you know, we spoke spoke a little bit about uh, sexually transmitted diseases, STIs, infections. Um, what is human papillomavirus and its relevance to gynae? Because it's quite specific, and and you know, we'll chat about the vaccine after this. Absolutely. Okay. So 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 without without speaking about the vaccine. You know, a, a human papillomavirus or HPV, it's a virus with so many different subtypes. There's, there's plenty, plenty different subtypes. And it's a virus that's spread through, through, through contact. We say it's a sexually transmitted virus, but you don't need to have penetrative sex to spread 
the HPV virus. It can be spread just through contact, even a, a couple who are using a condom. You know, just by close intimate contact, you can transmit the human But not by looking virus. at each other. I mean, absolutely it, not. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. Contact. So it's spread by contact. We even, you know, we speak about people who live very closely and share towels and share soap and things like that. It, you know, you can spread the virus like that itself. What the virus is, is it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a group of, it's a group of viruses, many different subtypes. And there are higher risk subtypes, which can predispose the patient to, uh, and not only cervical cancer, but one of the things that can, that can cause is cervical cancer. But more commonly, it's, it's, it's the virus that causes war. And, uh, you know, we, we're speaking of Zangani here, so we'll speak specifically about male antibodies by the, the, uh, the HPV or the human papillomavirus. You know, the, where it comes, you know, where, where we get really concerned about the HPV virus is when we talk about the high-risk groups or the high-risk subtypes, and those groups are responsible for causing cervical cancer, vulval cancer, um, you know, um, vaginal cancer, uh, anal cancer, and, that's, you know, those are the subgroups, and that's, that's, those are the HPV viruses that we are very concerned about, you know, in the field of Obzengani. It's a, it's a virus that we will all be exposed to at some point in our lives. However, 90% of people will, um, you know, naturally eradicate that virus without it ever showing any signs. So without any warts developing or anything, you know, abnormal developing on the cervix. However, some people, some people, you know, retain that virus for some reason. They can't clear that virus. And when the virus lingers, it can cause, you know, either warts or changes on the cervix, which, which we, we call pre-malignant. Uh, lesions on the cervix, which then slowly over time progress to cervical cancer. Cervical cancer is, you know, the the, the biggest cancer killer in, 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 in women in South Africa, and it's something that we're very, very concerned about, obviously. And um, and, and knowing that HPV is the cause of cervical cancer, very, very commonly not the only cause of it, you know, we, we, we've now developed some you know, some ways to, to reduce the, the, the deaths, you know, in South Africa or worldwide from cervical cancer. Um, you know, I'm trying to think what else I can tell you about. Well, let's, talk, let's talk about the vaccine. I mean, who should get the vaccine? Um, as far as I know, a lot of medical aids actually cover the vaccine in, in, in young women. I mean, is it a good thing? Um, Absolutely. Look, all, all girls should have, all girls certainly should have the vaccine. And we also recommend you know, even in boys to have the vaccine, um, there's two different types of vaccines. Let me just say that there's, there's the bivalent vaccine, which only has two subtypes of, of HPV, which are the high-risk subtypes. And then there's the quadrivalent, which has four of the subtypes, two of the high-risk subtypes, which cause cervical cancer. And then also the two most commonly causing um, warty um, lesions. And uh, we, we certainly recommend all girls should have at least the bivalent vaccine. And... Um, we, there are also guidelines and recommendations for boys to receive the quadrivalent vaccine. What this will do is prevent, you know, um, uh, exactly. So, so um, we, 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 we ideally everybody should be vaccinated before their sexual debut because we want the vaccine given before there's any chance of contracting the HPV high-risk subtypes. So, so, so that's when it, sh- it should be given before sexual debut and be giving it in early teenage years. Um, you know, most most places around the world, uh, the vaccines are either given at um, month zero, and then again one to two months later, and six months later. They also, if you use the bivalent vaccine, it just needs two two doses given. And you know, there's a massive reduction in 
with cervical cancer once the vaccine is used. And um, it's, 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 it's offered us a new primary prevention for cervical cancer. And not only cervical cancer, vulva, vaginal, and penile cancers um, in, in, in boys and, and anal cancers in both boys and girls. I think, so, uh, you know, we've mentioned warts a lot. I don't think people understand. We're not talking about, like, your average plantar wart that you find <laughs> on your thumb. We're talking about warts that are so pathological that at times we have to perform cesarean sections Absolutely. because there is actually obstruction an obstruction warts. at the vagina. Yeah. Like these are no joke warts. These are warts not to be messed with. These are the warts you don't want to see, you don't want to have, and for all the love in the world, you don't want to smell. Am I correct? Hold on one second, Ed. Sure. Sorry about that. I'm just, just, just quickly dealing with the patient, yeah? Oh, no problem. I hope, I hope we're not dealing with warts. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, not at all. Give me one second. No problem. Uh, well, look, so, uh, while uh, Dr. Interslack's um, using both hands, um, <laughs> I'll just... Sorry uh, about that. No problem. Yeah, go for it. Sorry, I was just making <laughs> no. some joke about you being having your hands full, or at least some of your fingers. But go for it. No, no, no. no I, I, sorry about that. I was just quickly being asked an opinion here yeah, about a patient. Sure. But all, all is under control. We're talking about warts. If yes. No, I was just saying like, these are no joke warts. These are, no, these no, are no. not mess around no, absolutely. warts. Absolutely. Look, it starts as a small wart, but they, they can develop specifically in patients who are HIV positive into really big, fungating, almost like cauliflower looking warts. And, oh. and you know, and, oh. you know <laughs> I'm having flashbacks. I'm having flashbacks. Okay. <laughs> Taking you back a few years. Listen, um, Yossi, I want to I want to thank you, Dr. Interslack. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, you've been absolutely, absolutely awesome. Pleasure. I think you've answered a lot of our viewers' questions. Uh, you've shared a lot of light on the vagina, uh, which is awesome. And uh, happy for you to give out my Twitter handle there. And people yeah, please do. Uh, what what is it? Go ahead. So 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 uh, I'm not not trying to make any enemies there, but my Twitter handle is United, as in Manchester United, United with an S. Yossi, U N I T E D S. Yossi, Y-O-S-S-I. Happy to take you know any questions over Twitter that people have. And uh, yeah, happy to be involved. Cool. Yossi, thanks so much for joining us. Take it easy. Go forth and uh, fix the vaginas out there. <laughs> Cheers, man. Thanks, Cheers. Have a good day. And ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of this week's Health Hour. It's been an absolute pleasure standing in for Dr. Witt. I hope you guys have learned something about the VJJ that you didn't know before. It does exist. It is a fantastic place. Sometimes it gets a little bit sick, but we know how to make it better. Um, please keep your questions coming in. You're welcome to send me any questions at A-D-A-M-H-M-A-N-N uh, and Twitter. It's Adam H. Mann. Um, otherwise, you can get hold of us through Cliff Central. And we'll catch up with you next week. Look after yourselves and stay healthy, mofos.